legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a few years ago on the website, we did an in-depth series about the history of traditional male honor. Uh, Honor is a big part of the male identity throughout cultures, throughout time. And it's just a fascinating subject because the way we think of it, think of honor today in the 21st century is completely different um, from what the way men thought of honor a uh, hundred years ago and a thousand years ago and two thousand years ago going on and on um, after we finished the series I discovered this book called Roman Honor the Fire in the Bones it was written by a classics professor at the University of Massachusetts her name is Carlin Barton and it literally is one of the best books I read in 2013 it's all about how the ancient Romans perceived honor and how honor just dictated how they interacted with one another and how they thought of themselves completely completely fascinating book so after i read it i had to get her on the podcast and that's what we're doing today we're going to talk to carlin barton and we're going to talk about ancient roman honor Uh, we're going to discuss what the romans thought of honor what it meant to them we'll also talk about how honor changed throughout roman history particularly during the civil wars and the rise of the roman empire uh, there was a decline in honor and sort of the traditional sense of honor and this rise of more cosmopolitan philosophies like cynicism and stoicism and epicureanism um, and we're gonna talk about why that is so it's a fascinating discussion it's a long one but if you listen to it all you're gonna be well rewarded so stay tuned carlin barton welcome to the show thank you okay so your book is roman honor the fire in the bones which is, i think is a great title that the fire in the bones and it's about the roman concept the ancient roman concept of honor so the first question i have is the most obvious is what is honor for the ancient romans because for us moderns honor is something akin to personal integrity you know living true to your own standards but for the ancient romans it was something different what did honor mean for them our modern conception of honor is to have a fixed set of laws or principles to which one has committed himself or herself, either ex- laws or principles either accepted on external authority 
um, the law of plans, the honor code of the Marines, the honor code of the University of Massachusetts, etc., or some code or principles asserted on one's own authority, like vegetarianism or um, a diet or an exercise routine. Um, and our notion of honor is to be consistent and rigorous in carrying out the demands of this code. In our code, to break the law or the code is dishonorable. It's shameful. For us, shame and honor are opposites. Either you are honorable or you are shameful. For the ancient, the ancient Roman notion of honor overlapped in some ways our notions of honor, but are very different in other ways. A word honor comes directly from Latin. It's a Latin word, but our notions of honor have been filtered through 2,000 years of Christianity, so they've changed a great deal. An honor or honores in the plural um, in Latin were mostly signs or uh, recognition of that one was honorable. Um, praise, deference, respect, crowns, torques, etc. All the things that other people give you in recognition um, that you have some kind of quality, again, which we call honor. Um, that was the word we've, we use. But in Latin, it's mostly used for these signs of recognition. And the word that they would have used for the sense of honor was a word pudor, P-U-D-O-R. And that was very different than our sense of honor. It's basically, you might call it the sense of shame, um, which was their sense of honor. The sense of, it embraced both our honor and our shame, both our pride and our dishonor. It embraced both sides of that equation. It was not based on a notion of principle or law did not come from scrupulously abiding by a code or law. There are exceptions to this case, but generally it was different from our notion of honor in that way. Rather, it was an acute sensitivity to the eyes and opinions of others. It was this very delicate sensitivity to the eyes and opinions of others, a sort of inner navigational instrument, kind of inner governing um, mechanism. It was, you might say, an acute social sense um, that one could detect by one's ability to blush, for instance. You know, with the ability to blush, that that sense that we had, that physical sense of being very liable to be influenced by the eyes and opinions of others. It was the product, basically, of small face-to-face -face cultures, this kind of honor. It's the product of small face-to-face -face cultures that did not rely on fixed law, but on sort of the generalized pressure of being in each other's eyes. All right, interesting. So, so it was more about reputation, I guess. I mean, sort of your standing within that a small group then oh yes okay exactly and it so it was not 
a matter of obedience. And I'll come back to that. It was a matter of this kind of delicate negotiation with other human beings in one's small group. Okay. It's fascinating. Um, So here's another question that I had as I was reading your book. um, It seems like based on my research on the topic of sort of classical or this traditional honor, whatever you want to call it, that past honor cultures basically assumed that everyone knew what honor meant or a sense of honor meant, and they rarely took the time to explicitly explain it. So there's there's very few times where there's text like, here's what... Here's what honor means. This is how you're supposed to react. Um, so, which makes it hard for us to kind of get at and understand it. How did you decipher what honor meant and the role it played in the lives of Romans? It's a great question. And I have to say, the Romans, especially the Romans of the Republic, are very difficult to understand because they're so. They have thought patterns that are very unlike our own. And precisely because, at least until the period of tremendous imperial expansion in the second century before the Common Era, the culture was relatively homogenous and, again, small and face-to-face. You know, people who knew the names of every Roman. Um, so they, um, they were not self-conscious in a way. And they didn't pride themselves on being self-conscious in the way that we do. And I'll, I'll explain how this works. In um, for the Romans of the Republic, again, relying on the, on for their government, there was there was almost no kind of official government. It was a little amateur government, and it didn't reach very far, and it was so minimal that mostly it was a government of shame, and it relied on on a fear, in a way, of acute self-consciousness, the punishment for for misbehaving, for acting shamefully, was conscientia. It's the word we get our, our um, word con- conscience and self-consciousness from. Conscientia um, was a tormenting self-awareness. That's like when one, all the group, people in one group, one's group looked at you with that, you know, hard stare, um, that suddenly you become super self-conscious. And it w- and that those looks could kill and those looks could set you apart and make you feel um, frozen with, with self-awareness. And conscientia generally in Latin was very negative. Again, it was a sense of guilt, was a tormenting sense. Um, but because we rely on sort of the eye of God or the kind of a kind of internalization of an authoritative eye, a surveilling eye, um, that consciousness was became a positive and eter- kind of eternal thing. You should always be self-conscious. This consciousness becomes the kind of Jiminy Cricket or this guardian of your morality. And that conscientia, that's why we think of it as positive conscience. But that, cons- um, that consciousness meant that you were separated out from everyone else, always. That you were both 
integrated into larger, more complex groups through this kind of hierarchical system with its, with its god or its king at the top, but it also separated you out into this permanent self-criticism, this permanent eye on yourself, which is often, in fact, usually this kind of imaginary eye of God or the community that you've internalized that looks at you constantly. Okay, and how that relates to your question is, in the relative homogeneity of early Roman culture, in the period before the expansions and the great century of civil wars, um, this kind of homogenous culture allowed for a language in which the words were undefined, ambiguous, often paradoxical. And the same word, anyone who studied Latin knows that the same word can stand for many, often many, many things, and often they're, to us, contradictory, paradoxical. The word, again, the word pudor meant, we have divided two words, honor and shame. Um, Sacer, sacred, was both cursed and blessed. Um, religio, from which we get our word religion, meant also meant could mean cursed or transgression or, you know, inhibition or reverence. It had, all Roman words had this very complex range of meanings. You can't get to that. And the more complex a culture becomes, the more difficult it is for um, people to grasp the context. All those words had to be contextualized. And that's when you get the Romans begin to define words. So only in the Civil War period and the period of imperial expansion, when it gets to be a huge, complex, heterogeneous society, that you see people begin to try to pin down words. So often, you get words first defined at the, after 500 years of in the Republic, at the end of the Republic, in the Civil War period. Cicero is the first one to say, religio is the cult of the gods, and he's actually changing the word radically. Um, when you get beginning to get words defined, you usually know that you're in a conflictual situation in which this, the meaning of the words is not any longer sort of taken for granted and contextualized but someone is fixing it as they would the law or the code. It's becoming something that then is being standardized, often from the top down. Does that make any sense? That, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, because, yeah, so in the beginning when it was more homogenous, smaller, there was no need to explicitly define it because everyone exactly. sort of had an understanding. But as you get bigger, you have to specialize and contextualize so everyone's on the same page. Exactly. It's like laying down the law. You yeah. know, Cicero in the Civil War period says, what we need are fixed laws, <laughs> and we need heaven, and we need hell, and we need, you know, a system of punishments and rewards so that things will be set, and they will be fixed, and they will be defined, um, because he's reacting to a century of chaos. Interesting. And we're going to talk more about um, the chaos and sort of the change and shift later on um, with the Stoics and Cynics, but... um. It's, fa it's very fascinating stuff, and this is one of the great insights I got from your book. You quote Cicero in your book saying, the whole glory of virtue resides, resides in activity. Um, and one of the big things I got from your book is that the Romans were very big on demonstrating their will. 
and their energy through strenuous challenges and contests. Tell me more about the philosophy behind this behavior and what sort of outlets for the energy they sought. Okay, the Romans, like almost every people, have some notion of soul or spirit. Um, but their notion of what your soul and your spirit was is very different from our own. Um, their spirit was their animus. The word from which we get words like animate or inanimate or animal, um, your animus was your will, your vigor, your vitality, um, your energy, your ability to act, your ability to move. Um, that's also why the Romans valued emotions so much, because they're the moving forces. They're the motive forces. Um, so the feeling of having spirit was the feeling of having vigor, of dynamism, of courage. Um, their word, it's very interesting, their word for cowardice is their word for lack of movement. Inertia, which we it's a word we still have in English. Inertia was both sitting still and cowardice, you know, being still, having no movement. Okay, you know, we can spend all our days sitting on the couch eating um, Cheetos and watching television and still have a soul. Because <laughs> we think of it, you know, it's just like a deposit in us that um, that doesn't depend on us and we don't make it. It's made for us and put inside of us. But the Romans had the notion that the animus was something that only existed in its, what, in its manifestations. Um, you had to demonstrate to yourself and to others that you had energy, vigor, vitality. Hence, the importance of the role of labor, labor. You know, demonstrating that vigor. That's why the Romans, you know, the Romans, um, made roads of stone and aqueducts that would last for thousands of years. And every night the soldiers on their marches would build a whole fort. That meant they not only had their rucksacks filled with heavy equipment and their armor, they carried those beams, those poles, so that every night they could construct a fort. Other people looked at them like they were crazy. <laughs> but this, this, to us, this endless, endless, demonstration of vitality was also the feeling of the fullness of being. So they'll take almost every opportunity they can to, to show that will. That's also, again, something that's originating in their minds. It's a power that originates from inside rather than something that you get by hooking gears with the powerful. Like our notion of power is is a combination of this internalized source of power and then sort of getting or grasping power that can be obtained from outside by hooking gears with it. I mean, the Romans had both those ideas too, but the balance in Roman thought is more to taking as much as possible of this getting as much as possible of your power from this inner source of energy. Hmm. So that makes yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's uh, their soul was displayed through action or even was just alive through action. If they didn't have a, 
Exactly. They weren't you moving. You had no. You you are inert. You had no soul. Interesting. So did they have like a place for leisure in their life, or? Yes. Yeah, they did. Um, they do. I think that there's a kind of, and this is again related to their notions of honor, and that we have kind of this idea that. You know, the honorable man is like Cal Ripken. You always show up to the game. Yeah. Um, that you're consistent and you follow the same rules all the time. But the Romans, as many ancient cultures, it's kind of a rich, like the boundary is, in, is, is at the middle rather than at the edges. And you're always transgressing and withdrawing and transgressing and expiating. And so, so that, you know, there's an effort and then there's a relaxation. There's an effort and a relaxation. It's never full speed ahead. Um, it's, and this may sound like a contradiction because they loved energy. They loved to demonstrate energy, but they're also extremely cautious in ways that we aren't about the direction your energy should take. So their notion of religio, for instance, their notion with, from which we get our word religion, has nothing to do necessarily with the gods. It's that hesitation Stopping and thinking before you act is a kind of, you are taking responsibility for the direction in which your energies go. So there's also, it's just a kind of different equation than we're used to. We're used to loving everything in extremes, but not actually thinking very much about the direction our energies go in. Romans, because, again, they don't have much of a government, especially in the Republic, they're they're much more deliberative about the ways in which they apply their energy. I'm not sure if that yeah, answers your question. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So here's a question that sort of relates to the art of manliness, I guess. Um, so you, it's about the, the Roman conception of me, being a man. So you wrote that the Roman was born a male, which is, I guess, pronounced mas in Latin. Mas, right. Uh-huh, or a human, which is homo. But made right. oneself a man, um, yeah. weir, right? Is my Latin weir, right? right? Weir, V-I-R, yeah. weir. Um, weir. A weir is not a natural being. Um, so how did the Romans understand the designator weir? So it's like man, right? And what qualities did a man need to show himself a weir? Okay, great question. Um in our culture, generally, boys just sort of slip into manhood. You know, there's no, there's no initiations, no clear dividing line. There's nothing except getting older, which makes you a, a man. You know, I sort of honorifically call my um, teenage boys men. You know, in my classes and things like that. But, but there's no, as in so many cultures, special test or qualification for being a man. Um, but for the Romans, and I believe that in the very early period, they did have a kind of initiation, but in the period, the historical period, it was some demonstration of courage, energy, vigor, was what changed a mass into a weir. And weirtus, which is often translated as manliness, B-I-R-T-U-S, was becomes, again, in the Roman imperial period and in Christianity, basically obedience to law or authority. Again, it's related to our notions of honors being consistently committed to a code, etc. Um, but for 
the Romans wear tooth was, and again, someone ascribing wear tooth or to a, a male would mean that we recognize your courage, your energy, your honor. It's all kind of a honorific title. It's sort of like like when we in English will say someone is a real man. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't have just these distinguishing. We don't say someone's a male, we say they're a man. But the Romans would distinguish the male from the weir. Um, the weir, um, at, like the weira, weira is an ancient word for, for woman, um, were both ancient kind of honorary titles for a male or female in their prime. Um, it's related to the word weis, um, plural wires, which was the, a word for strength, and also wereditas, um, greenness, the greenness, the sap of youth, the vigor of youth, and so that it was, it was this vigor, again, this kind of um, dynamism that was rewarded with the title weir. Did I think you talk quite a bit about this in your book, but this idea of uh, expendability or being willing to just die. Yes. Um, what what role did that play in the title of Weir? Oh, that's that's a, another great question. This notion of animus or will was will was demonstrated above all in acts that were self. Could harm the self or even kill the self. And this sounds very contradictory to us, but part of our notions of, let's say, the chosen death are that um, it's one does not belong to oneself, so one has no right to take one's own life. But for the Romans, um, you're the ultimate, in some ways, often the ultimate act or expression of will was being expendable. And um, and the males in the culture, unlike the females who were, you know, had to take care of the children and reproduce, um, were always the the most expendable ones for the culture. But for themselves, of course, everyone is just as valuable as every, you know, everyone is the center of the universe. But Many of the Roman stories focus on the the male or female who was out of a choice, and it always has to be out of a choice and out of their will, prepared to die. Um, so that, for instance, our I, and I don't understand this, and you may be able to to um, explain this to me. But I, I like to watch what are the key and central stories that are told over and over and over and over again in a culture. And I know in our culture, it's always stories about triumphing against impossible odds. You know, we like to get to the top against impossible odds. And, you know, if you look at any of our movies, Gravity, Captain Phillips, Slumdog, Millionaires, we'd like that, even though it's Indian, all is lost. Um, I can tell you how many stories in movies are the same story. There's someone against all odds, they manage to survive or they manage to 
conqueror. They managed to get to the top of the hill despite having both their legs blown off. You know, so yeah. they they do something impossible. But almost all riveting Roman stories are about um, the loss of honor, the loss of honor, some humiliation. They're captured. They're like a creature. They're raped. They're violated. There's some sort of way in which they're horribly humiliated. Mm. Then the Romans really watch. It's like all their attention and all their focus and all their interest in the redemption of lost honor. That to them is the most compelling story. That's one of the things they loved about the gladiatorial arena, about the way in which the, the gladiator, the, the perpetrator, the lost soul, recovers his honor. So stories, like their favorite stories, Lucretia, Musa Scaiola, Regulus, they're all stories of people who had been captured, uh, in the case of Regulus, who had, and, and Marcus, I mean, I'm sorry, Musa Scaiola, and Lucretia had been raped and violated, and they were all people who said, basically, look at me. Everybody look at me and look at what I'm going to do now. <laughs> so you see Skyler when he's caught by um, the Etruscans, when he crossed over into the Etruscan lines to assassinate the Etruscan king, and he's caught, and he's brought before Lars Porsena, and he's threatened with torture by fire, and they build this ring around the fire fire around him in order to get him to confess his evil plot. I mean, he takes his right hand and he thrusts it in the, the blazing brazier and he lets his hand burn off while staring, you know, Christina in the eye. And he says, you know, to him, I am as prepared to die as to kill. And, you know, you can't threaten me. My name is Musis. I am a Roman. There's nothing you can do to me that I won't do worse to myself. So there's no threat. You cannot threaten a Roman. So in the story, in Livy's version of the story, um, Lars Parsena raises this siege of Rome, and he makes an alliance with the Romans because he knows they're in, you, know, you can't defeat these people because they can't be frightened. So the Romans loved our story. Lucretia, after she's raped, calls home the men folk. They say, it's not your fault, Lucretia. And she then says, I don't want to be a bad example for other women, and I'll show you that though, you know, my body has been violated, my spirit is intact. And she shoves that, she shoves that knife into her heart. And that's like the whole beginning of the Republic. I mean, these stories about will and the, the, and the self, the deliberate and very theatrical destruction of the self can often be meant to show that, to show how much will I still possessed. So for us, suicide is basically, you know, jumping ship, um, um, not being able to stand suffering. You know, we should be able to endure suffering. But um, for the Romans, at particular times, and they also had contempt for people who who killed themselves to escape suffering. But when that was en enabled you, especially in where there was no other way to show how much will you still possessed, um, that, that um, 
those behaviors would become not only positive, but emulated um, and deeply admired. So it was a very complex, um, what was a very complex game in which your death could mean a thousand things. But in particular circumstances, when you had lost honor, your death could actually be your means of restoring honor. Interesting. That's why the gladiators, for instance, even if they lost their, even if they lost and were to be executed, they bared their throats to show that as an act of will. You to be, if you, if you could do nothing else at the for the very last act, to like, you know, sweep your hair away from your neck and mm-hmm. bare that neck to show that. Your death was your will. Um, that enabled you to redeem your honor. Cicero, when he's finally chased down and put to, about to be put to death by Antony's thugs in the Civil War period, bears his throat like a brave gladiator to show that his final act was an, a voluntary act of will. That is really fascinating. And, it, and what I... Yeah, especially about the gladiators, glad, you know, the glad, gladiators um, um, exposing their throat willingly, and I didn't think about it that way. It was a way to redeem themselves because typically the gladiators were prisoners or you know people you know the, who got captured or were slaves. Um, they were, you know, they were in the beginning by the Augustan period. About half of them are volunteers, really, and they come from every class, um, from the highest class. Um, on and especially the very highly trained ones were mostly the sort of gladiators we hear about in the text were all very highly trained. And those were mostly volunteers, and they went into the arena to redeem their honor. That's interesting. Very fascinating. And it would the this whole expendability or harming yourself to show, I guess, your sincerity of will or that you have will. Didn't wasn't just self inflicted. Um, you talk about generals who would, or fathers, who would kill their sons, um, or let their sons die um, to show, I don't know, to, to redeem their honor because maybe their son did something that was dishonorable, and to show that they were, you know, uh, with the cause, like they would say, yeah, execute my son. And they would do it stoically without shedding a tear. They'd just be like, you know. Publicly, they would display that, saying that yes, um, I my honor, I I have redeemed myself. Is that did I read that right? Well, the killing the kids is always the most dramatic act in any culture sure. to slay your own children, um, or to let them be slain. Now, um, there are stories. In the, in the Roman canon of great stories, and they taught by stories, that was their exemplar, examples, the, all these great heroic stories were the way they taught the next generation. Um, there are stories of honor killings. For instance, um, the plebeian um, Virginia um, killed his daughter, Virginia, Virginia, because she was going to be enslaved by and used as basically um, a sexual slave by a patrician. And in order to prevent her from being enslaved, he killed her. 
Um, and this is a tremendously dramatic act. All these, all these, it brings down, it brings down the government, the, the plebeian government of the Dekemwiri, which is complicated to explain, but mm-hmm. caused another revolution in this slaying. And he does it not because he doesn't love her, but it's, it's, it's because he loves her very much. And that's a given within the story that she has done nothing wrong. She's, in fact, very, she's pure and she's taste and she's good, and he just won't let her be enslaved by this monster, Claudius, this petition monster. Um, so he kills her. But other stories, for instance, famous story that starts um, the revolution of that brings down the ancient monarchy and creates the republic, was Brutus's slaying of his sons. Now, in that case, um, you have the beginnings of, of in, in some ways, our modern values. Like we don't let we don't slay our children, no. but we let the state slay our children. Mm-hmm. You know, modern the modern nation state. The, all, the language of sacrifice is you know giving your sons, giving your lives for the state, etc. And this was the first case in Roman in Roman stories of a father slaying his, or letting his sons be slain um, for the sake of the Republic. He's brought down the monarchy, he's created this new aristocratic um, um, government of the Republic, and his sons are trying to bring back the old monarchy. Um, they're, they're caught, and they're he has them publicly executed in front of his own eyes. Wow. So this is like a choice he's making, which is always a very big choice in the Romans, between, never settled, by the way, between the family and the state. There's always tremendous, tremendous tension between one's loyalty to one's family and one's loyalty to the state. It's never clearly established in the ancient, ancient Roman world. And here's a case of a father putting... The, the race publica, the new state above his family, and it's meant to be a model for um, for subsequent generations that the state should come first. Now there were again there were only handful stories about slaying the children, mm-hmm. all of of Roman history, very small. Usually, it's um, there are one or two cases of a father, let's say, a son, slaying a son because he joined the culinarian conspiracy against the state or um, um, ran away from um, what deserted the army or something like that. Usually they're, they're models of putting the state before the family. In a few cases, as in the case of Virginia, He's putting his family ahead of the state um, and slaying his child. Usually, you usually the tension was that you won't slay your child mm-hmm. for God or the state. Okay, gotcha. And there's always that tremendous tension. Okay, um, so we've been kind of talking about this throughout, and you've kind of alluded to it. But how did the Romans handle defeat? And I'm not just talking defeat in battle, but sort of like status defeat. Um, you know, and how does the way that we handle it, you know, status defeat, different from them? 
I think, again, that what the Romans will look for is some kind of opportunity to show tremendous energy. So, for instance, the soldiers who survived the Battle of Cannae and were disgraced for surviving um, were sent to serve without pay in Sicily. And it was those soldiers who, under Scipio Africanus, volunteered to invade Africa even while Hannibal was still in Italy to take the war to Africa. And it was those volunteer soldiers, fiercely trained by Scipio Africanus, who defeated Hannibal at Zama. Um, it, they have to do something to, to show even more energy than would normally be expected. So the soldiers, for instance, who were captured at the Caldean Forks, um, um, was it 321? I can't remember exactly. Um, and were horribly disgraced and considered disgraced and considered themselves as dead, um, for having survived defeat. Again, that was, there was no, um, positive way to survive a defeat. Um, then volunteer become the soldiers that the next year, um, go out and destroy the Samnites. I mean, you had to somehow, if you had to show, ordinarily you had to show energy, to redeem your honor, you had to show much more energy, like an extraordinary amount of courage. Um, and you felt that everyone was watching, and you had to say, okay, now watch me. Um, so it was a little like, you know, Rocky. The first Rocky, well, I only saw the first Rocky movie. I know there were 15 of them, but <laughs> you know, when you just keep getting up after you're knocked down, and then you fight harder after you're knocked down, and then you get up and you fight harder after you're knocked down, um, we had this sort of illusion about the Romans that they always won. No, they mostly lost, um, but they would just, just always come back at you next time more ferociously. They would come back with more this tenacity. And it's every soldier and the group of them together that create this this kind of ferocity. Um, um, individually, it would be a version of the same thing, you know, just um, getting up one more down and being even more... Um, what vigorous and energetic than you were before. It's hard. It was, I know it was much harder to restore your honor. It seems like when I was reading that, that the Romans made, I guess they, they provided, there was room for people to fail or you know, it was expected that, you know, if you, if you didn't have the capability of blushing um, or experiencing shame, then something was wrong with you. Yeah, um, and, and they they allowed you to redeem yourself um, in some way. There was like they had some like a, a social mores in place that allowed people to redeem themselves. That's just part of their culture. I feel like today, um, it's when you if you disgrace yourself, it's like annihilation of yourself. Like there's no, there's it's very hard to redeem yourself um, because we don't we don't we we don't allow that. I feel like we don't allow people to fail. You either have to you have to be like Cal Ripken. You got to show up consistently. Right, right. Right, right, that's our idea, yeah. It's true. It's true, this total consistency. It's true in many ways, 
as fierce as the Roman way of conceiving the world seems, it was in many ways a much more flexible system than our own. Again, you know, the state, once the state takes over, it starts looking more and more like our own. Um, you know, again, the more you move into the world of, let's say, the army, it's a world that looks very much like our own with this fierce code and obedience and, um, it's really the model, because the ancient state was modeled on the ancient, ancient warfare, which was, and then Christianity took up the model of the ancient state and of warfare and created a certain kind of vision of honor based on, um, obedience to authority. And it, it's all a, a very complex, but, mm-hmm. but regular trajectory. But the most ancient, the most ancient kind of way of operating the world of the Romans that you see among small, generally among, um, not among hunter, Roman hunter-gatherers, because we don't have any record of Roman hunter-gatherers, you know, there was such a thing, but among hunter-gatherers in general and in small agricultural cultures and face-to-face cultures tends to be harder in other ways, harder to... Um, escape, let's say, from this constant um, general surveillance of other people. But it also tends to be more a kind of bargaining system or a balancing system. Um, their whole way of relating to the universe, to the powers that be, do, do utes, I give you this, so you'll give me this. I'll give you this, so you stay away. Um, it's kind of endlessly, again, not a fixed or rigid system of code or laws, but a general orienting oneself into the social situation, into discerning at every moment where the powers are and and kind of negotiating with them so that every, in so, from the most ancient layers of Roman culture, you can see this endless transgression and expiation. You go out to come in. You go over the boundary to come back. There's endless um, tension and relaxation. Like the Romans, we value, it's either tremendous, fierce activity or total class. You know, in our culture, you're either sitting in front of the television or you're running 100 miles. Um, But the Romans, it's much more of constant rhythms of of advance and routine. Tension, relaxation. Um, they're much more generally tense than we are, but they also kind of have many more ways of um, expiating crimes, getting rid of tension than we do. So, in a way, I think of them as the, the relationship between animals who are um, prey and animals who are predators. Mm-hmm. If you watch prey animals, if you watch a squirrel or a bird, you know, they're always on alert, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking in every direction, and they're generally quite nervous. Um, um, they're, they're kind of constant, low-level nervous tension. Um, but then you watch prey animals. I w- watch my cat when she sometimes acts like a prey animal, she's a little nervous thing, but then when she sees a mouse, all her energies are focused, and she'll stand there perfectly still, and then she'll pounce with this ferocious 
ferocious energy, you know. We're much more, we, and it, this happens in complex cultures as you get this huge hierarchical systems develop, which can really be colossal war machines. But you tend to be, and soldiers are always thinking about that either you're doing nothing or you're exercising this tremendous yeah. energy. Um, you know, you can, you can, you can capture and direct this huge amount of energy. And most humans prefer, I mean, one of the ways you can do that is because they prefer feeling like predators than prey. Yeah. You know, that loss, you know, that, that, that sense of, um, even if someone else is directing your energies, of like having this enormous energy, even though it's not being, really being generated totally from within, um, you can feel like a predator. The, the ancient farmer and, and um, peasant had much more combination of predator and prey behaviors. They're more like my pussycat. You know, when they're on the land, you know, farmers are, farmers are prey animals per excellence. They're like fish in a barrel. Every group of brigands, every, you know, army that walks through, they're subject to every kind of disease and bad weather. And there have to be, their tension has to be everywhere. So there's a more low level and constant tension, but they tend not to be divided between this kind of total passivity and furious activity. They tend to be much more rhythmic in their behaviors. And again, they're, let's say their relationship to the powers they'd be. They make a thousand, thousand gods. You know, they can make them on the spur of the moment. They have Robigus, the god of mildew. They have Sturculus, the god of the dung heap. They have a, you know, Terminus, the god of the boundary line. They have, a, they have so many gods you'd never be able to count. Um, and they're constantly negotiation, negotiating with either, all of them. You know, there's so that there's a constant movement of attention everywhere. But there's, um, you know, built into that a kind of, you know, you have your, or you make your festival of Robicus, you make your festival of the mildew and the hope that the mildew won't attack your wheat. Yeah. And then you have a party. You kill the animal, you slay it, you bring this up to this tremendous tension in the sacrificial system, and then you have a party. You know, there's sort of a kind of endless, endless low-level vibration. In, in complex cultures, it tends to be either, either passivity or tremendous activity. Interesting. Very fascinating um, thing, stuff there. Um, so here's something that, that uh, I found fascinating. You wrote this throughout the book, kind of hit on this topic. Um, you write that the Romans, um, that for the Romans, there was no depth without surface. Um, yeah. And so like us moderns feel that the idea of caring about your reputation or wearing a mask or playing a role uh, in a social group is, you know, it's false. It's inauthentic. Um, right. But the Romans, you know, we're playing a role, wearing a mask, that was a very positive thing. Um, why is that? Our word person is actually Latin persona, which was a theatrical mask. Um, okay, several things. One, it was that 
um, especially, again, in smaller face-to-face cultures, um, one was always on display. And the Romans had the notion not of kind of um, internalizing an eye of God, but the eye of your neighbor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that you acted as if you were always on the stage. In some ways, a very theatrical society in that you were always playing a role. But one of the differences was that the Romans always assumed you played many roles. So that um, there would be a shift in your persona, your faces would be changed according to um, your role at the moment. Now you're a mother. Now you're um, a wife. Now you're uh, an artist or a, um, uh, a musician. Or, you know, you, you had an endless supply of them, just like on the Roman stage. And it also gave you a place for a kind of secret self. Um, that they they didn't really they had an idea of exposure like someone with someone who felt the fullness of being could stand up straight and look other people straight in the eye. You know, there's a sense of I the person who has pudor who has a sense of shame, um, and who feels a, a sense of their fullness of being did not bend, did not bow, did not get on their knees. They looked, they were able to stand up straight and say, look at me, take your best shot. So you see Roman portraits, they show the wrinkles, they show the pimples, they, you know, Roman portraits, and they're like Greek portraits, they absolutely look to us like anybody you could meet on the street. And this notion of here I am, you can look at me, I'm not afraid to be looked at. I'm not ashamed to be looked at. So, like us, they have a value of a public persona and a, and having a secret self. But for them, it was this the the stage of life was their government, really. You know that was how that was what governed people. Um, but it also meant that um, a word. Secret comes from the Latin secerna, which means to set apart. There could also be that inner secret self behind the, the persona. But the notion that... Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? 
You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use fast-growing trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on fast-growing trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. One should be transparent. You get that when you get the notion that of the all-seeing eye. Mm-hmm. You know, the big eye, the big eye in the sky. You know, <laughs> it's like, and that one can hide nothing. So that, um, you know, it's not only an attempt to, it, it, that, if you're trying to hide, it means you're a criminal of some kind. If you're trying to hide, it means that you've got, you know, a guilty conscience. It means that you're um, secretly um, have things that you would not want God to see. And that notion that one should be transparent is that one, that's the only way to be in right relationship with the big I. 
um, that the persona, the mask, was the mask of the hypocrite. Our word hypocrite just means actor. Mm -hmm. So our word, both our word person and our word hypocrite come from the same notion that the actor becomes negative. It's like it takes this 180-degree turn, like the word conscientia, and it becomes um, negative, that one is a hypocrite when one puts on a mask, um, and one can hide from the eye in the sky anyway. Um, But the Romans didn't have that eye in the sky. Interesting. Um, So we've kind of talked about this too before throughout this, uh, our conversation, but, uh, as the, the Republic transitioned to an empire, uh, honor and sort of worthy competition eroded and the Romans began turning to the cynics and the Stoics, uh, for a new philosophy to guide their lives. Why were these philosophies appealing in these circumstances? Okay. The first thing, to point out is the Romans had a hundred years of civil war as a direct result of their conquest. Um, it, they were not, they did not have any way of adjusting to this very great cosmopolitan world that they suddenly were in charge of. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any, any governmental apparatus. They didn't have any conceptual apparatus. They did not have an ideology of imperialism. They did not have any way to really absorb their conquest. Um, and of course, an occasioned a century of increasingly bloody and horrible civil wars. And that totally undermined, I shouldn't say totally, but it, it largely undermined the government of shame, which relied on really kind of homogenous face-to-face cultures. Um, Blood on the village, in the community, and and that's gone. This is gone, and you're killing brothers, are killing brothers. It's like there's no rules of the game at all anymore, and this caused a, a crisis, a, tr- a tremendous crisis for all Romans, and there are a thousand adjustments that had to be made to live in this great complex hierarchical, heterogeneous world, ones that we're still making. Um, and some of these, they, they adapt, adopted and adapted from Greek culture because the Greek city-state culture of classical Athens and Sparta and Corinth and Thebes had also been destroyed and conquered by Alexander and his successors. And the Greeks from living in these small face-to-face cultures were suddenly engulfed by these huge hierarchical, monarchical empires. And they, three centuries before the Romans, had to make similar adjustments. So the Romans began watching the Greeks and picking up from them some of these strategies to live in a totally different kind of world. One of them was that there, I mean, there's a whole wonderful range of them. There's a whole kaleidoscope of possibilities. But one was, one great strategy was the cynic strategy, which basically says, I'm a citizen in the world. I have, you know, I'm a cosm, I'm the ultimate cosmopolite. So I respect the laws of no culture, no, no group. I'm here alone. I leave my culture. I leave behind my family. 
I leave behind all my possessions. I go out into the world as close as possible to naked, being naked in the world. Um, And I'm free. There are no laws for me. There's no authorities for me. I speak back to kings, you know. They became very famous. I mean, they're a small minority, a very tiny minority of people actually adopted the cynic life. But they were also very, what, visible and very exciting. People loved and hated the cynics (laughs) because they would say anything, they would do anything, they would fornicate in the streets, they would defecate in the porticos, they would... They were just outrageous, as outrageous as they could possibly be. Um, and they were also envied. You know, we have famous um, uh, apocryphal story of Alexander, you know, wanting to meet Diogenes the Cynic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming to Diogenes, Diogenes laying in his his old pot in the cemetery and and... Alexander calls out to Diogenes, and Diogenes lay there and, you know, says yes. Um, and Alexander says, I will give you anything you want. And Diogenes says, get out of my son, get out of my sunlight. <laughs> and Alexander goes off saying, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. You know, <laughs> that this total freedom, you know, was envied by the king, you know. Um, so that was one strategy. The Stoics, they were sort of would-be cynics who wanted to hold on to their families, mm. wanted to hold on to their positions, wanted to keep their house and car and job. Yeah. And they would say things like, you can have all these things, but just not be attached to them. You, know, you can have all these things, um, but don't love them. You know, Don't love them. They're just to you on loan. Your life is given to you on loan. Your spirit comes from outside and is just given to you on loan. Everything is on loan to you. Nothing belongs to you. And the way you get along in the world is by assuming that you can hook gears with the powers that be. The powers that be are bigger than you. Power comes basically from outside of you. And you get it by by swimming downstream rather than swimming Upstream. When I was a graduate student at the University of Oregon, we used to swim in the Willamette River. And if you jumped in upstream and swam downstream, you felt so powerful. <laughs> but if you tried, turned around and tried to swim upstream, you, you'd make no progress at all. So we'd get up and walk upstream, upstream and then you know, swim downstream again. And it was that idea of like swimming downstream, going with the flow, hitching gears with the powerful. Um, then there were the Epicureans, who I love. The Epicureans are really wonderful. They said, well, yes, things are all out of our control. The gods made the world, and then they just left it, left us here. And so you can't control anything. Give up all control and just live in the moment. Live for today um, and then live for pleasure. Either, you know, eat, drink, and be merry like Horace, or think of it as the absence of pain as the highest pleasure. But it was a kind of surrender. It was like getting on the jet plane and strapping yourself in and saying, go on my hands. <laughs> I give them all the power. I don't keep any of the power myself. I get on the plane, strap myself in, and just say, 
you know, we've got a benevolent God, we've got a benevolent pilot, he's not crazy, he's not drunk, he's not insane, you know, he can land us in a teacup. Um, um, giving the power away. Um, so this is only, these are only three of the many kind of ways of, of kind of coping with the loss of that kind of face-to-face culture, which in, which in some ways gave you the burden, but also the freedom to constantly assess your own capacities and what you could do in the world. We're much more confused about that because we get out of the jet plane when we're totally, look, we can make it as a group, look, we can make a jet plane, but individually you're powerless mm-hmm. on that jet plane. Even if you're um, you know, a rocket scientist, you're, you're equally powerless on that jet plane. But then you have to get into your old Volkswagen and drive yourself home, in which case you've got to be back, you know, you're a squirrel again, yeah. watching everything having to be, you know, drive defensively, etc. Um, so um, it's, the, you never quite get out of that world where you are the prey. We, I mean, we all have to, on our daily, everyday life, live like a squirrel or a bird or some degree. But we all had those experience, either being a soldier in the army, you know, that kind of ferocious energy you get from being um, um, rooting for your team, you know, being part of a team. Um, um, we know what it's like to have that, you know, um, um, predator energy, but it comes at the price of usually obedience, submission, um, that ferocious sense of power often comes with another kind of powerlessness. You get soul, but you miss animus. You get yeah. you lose you lose your animus. Um, there's always these trade offs. The more independence, like I'm totally love to be a squirrel or a bird. You know, it's like I'm so used to being this little nervous creature. But it means that I try to live my life in this very quiet way where I can maximize my personal autonomy and independence, mm-hmm. but it means like always being on the alert. Um, you know, I don't like to be on the jet plane. I don't like, I don't really like, you know, being in a club or joining a group or joining a team. I like to maximize my independence, but I know that comes with the cost of almost never feeling tremendously powerful. Hmm. It's very interesting. Um, because yeah, I, yeah, I feel like today in our culture, um, and it's interesting, I I don't know if you've noticed this, but, um, stoicism as a philosophy is very, it's getting more and more popular, particularly amongst entrepreneurs and these Silicon Valley types. Um, because I think they see it as, you know, in their field of business, everything's constantly changing. Um, and they really don't have any control over whether their startup will succeed or not. Um, oh, and so stoicism, they, they turn to stoicism as it, well, you know, at least I can have form this inner citadel, as Marcus Aurelius said that, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm a rock, I'm a stone, you can't hurt me, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very interesting that you're seeing that, you're seeing more and more, like stoicism become more and more popular again um, today. That, you know, it's, so interesting that you said I didn't know anything about um, startup um, um, 
companies in Silicon Valley, but I remember when I was in in college, there was this um, man, Jack Rosenberg, who took, what was the name he took again? He took, he wanted to sound like a German psychologist, so he took the name um, Earhart, Werner Earhart. Okay, he yeah. introduced Werner Earhart seminars all over the country. Um, and it was pure stoicism. Not only was it, you know, I, it's like I knew some people who spent a fortune on this. And I said, you know, the, he's giving you directly, you know, he's just giving you the text of Epictetus and Seneca and Mark Aurelius. That's all it was. And I said, I can give you those for free. Um, but they were learning not to be victims in the world. Um, they were not letting go. You know, um, you know, if you saw that someone beating their dog, just let it go. You know, and there's this whole thing with going with the flow. You know, and and hooking gears with the powerful. And yes, it's in fact most of these strategies, although they took a kind of intellectualized, idealized forms, you don't have to learn them. They're like Part of all of our, and part of all of our possibilities that really they're, how should I say, they, you don't have, no one has to teach you them. You know, it's like that idea that when you're fired, you say, you can't fire me, I quit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the way I sometimes explain it to my students is that if there's an apple, if you're hungry and there's an apple on the tree and you can just reach up and get it. You, you you just reach up and get it. Then it's a little higher up on the tree. You use a tool, a stick or a ladder, or you, know, you try to knock it down. You try to use some sort of extra. You get a little extra help. When it's way up on the tree, then you pray for it, right? When it's something you can't figure out how to get yourself, then you say, oh, please, please get it for me. That's where you know you call on powers outside of yourself. When it's all the way up at the top of the tree and you can't get it, your prayers don't help, then you say, I never wanted it anyway. <laughs> yeah, the sour grapes. So like the Romans who were extremely, for instance, devoted to their families and children. In the imperial period, they adopt this philosophy of Stoicism which says, you know, I don't really care if they live or die. You, you know, they're just unknown to me. It doesn't yeah. really matter to me. It's a, also a kind of way of Stoning one's inner self so one really doesn't care what happens. And one can say, it's out of my control, therefore, I don't really care about it. Yeah. You know, all, of the, and all humans want as much control as they can get, but you also have to assess, you know, where the power really is. Often you don't know, and you just have to sort of... Um, go try to sort of relax and go with these powers. But to do that, you also have to cut off certain other parts of you. Um, I The difference, I can think of it in the story of, in Seneca, who's writing in the period of Nero, and, and the Seneca, Luca, and Petronius, all these brilliant Romans, lived intimately with Nero, all of whom were killed by Nero, and lived in the most excruciating insecurity. They were rich, they were powerful, and horribly insecure. So, they, you know, Seneca, like Marcus Rees, wanted to be a stoic. Oh, let it go. Look, you can't control everything. Let it go. Let it go. Um, they're in a world where 
they can't, they feel so fragile. They're so powerful and so fragile. And Seneca wrote a play based on Euripides called The Trojan Women. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most powerful things any Roman ever wrote. And in it, this Stoic describes this mother, Andromache, trying to keep her son, Hector's son, Astyanax. Andromache was the wife of Hector. And now Hector's dead, and they're all captives, and they're all going to be taken away um, by the Achaeans, the Greeks, into slavery, and they're going to kill her child. And it's about her efforts to try in every, every way she can possibly think of. She lies. She threatens. She begs. She, she shames. She tries every strategy she can. Again, she's not honorable in our sense. She's honorable in, you know, the ancient Roman sense. She tries everything she can to save that child. And, and she fails. She cannot save the child. Nothing she does. They're going to kill it. And in the end, the little boy, this little child, walks to the edge of this tower where they're going to push him down, and he leaps so that in the, when he is totally cannot do anything to save himself, he shows this last second of power and energy by doing it himself. So, But then, you know, you compare this with, like, um, the way that the story of Abraham works in uh, both in ancient Hebrew tradition and then later on in Christian and Islamic tradition, where God says, kill your kids, and Abraham says, yes, of course. Um, this idea that, that you get your mo- you're going to get your most power by this total obedience and surrender. Then, of course, because he was willing to kill his kid, God not only doesn't take his child, but then says, you will prosper and multiply and fill the world yeah. with like the sands of, you know, the grains of sands uh, um, will be your descendants. Um, this idea that the most power you can get is from this total linking gears with the powers that be. You say you want my child, have my child. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's these tremendous tensions in ancient thought. Um between a world in which you still feel that maybe through your, through your own negotiations and strategizing, you can maximize your own sense of efficacy, you can maximize your own sense of confidence, um, and you'll do it if you can. Like Andromache, she does everything she can to get that apple down off that tree when she can't get it. It's the apple itself, this little boy who just says, you can't find me, I quit. Mm-hmm. And then he leaps. Um, they, they, in, in the Roman sensibility, even in the early imperial period, they're not really willing, even by a Stoic like Seneca, he's not really willing to give up that very ancient notion of maximizing your autonomy, again, which does not mean obedience. That's the biggest difference in our notion of honor and the ancient notion of honor. Virtus, virtue for us is obedience. Virtus was this energy, vigor. Um, but we're, they're moving into a world where they're increasingly faced with total powerlessness. You know, and that, that's the hardest thing, and that's the hardest thing for us in our complex culture, is that how to feel powerful when we're endlessly faced with a kind of miniaturization 
um, lack of confidence. We have no, almost no confidence. If I didn't have a job as a professor in this big machine called the University of Massachusetts, I'd be, I'd be selling pencils on Avenue A in Turner's Falls, and I don't even know how to make a pencil. <laughs> I have no general confidence. I have, you know, this expertise. But that means you put expertise to enable you to feel powerful. You have to have a, a place in the machine. There's got to be, we're always saying to our you know, students, you, you'll find your niche. Yeah. Meaning that you're, the only place you can hope for a sense of power is when you're part of a big machine. And we're all aware of that. If you don't get a job, you'll, you'll just be on the street. And unless you want to be there, like the Phoenix, you'll feel really totally powerless. Um, um, it's a, and that, in complex cultures, is the most difficult thing to negotiate. And this is where a huge number of complicated strategies come into play to try to somehow adjust to the fact that we're both, for all, each one of us is the center of our own, the whole universe, right? It comes into being and dies when we die. Um, and this feeling of being absolutely nothing. And that's a huge gap. I think in small face-to-face cultures, like within the family, there's a more of a balancing. You know you're powerless and you're powerful. You're powerless and powerful. And you're constantly negotiating those. Like the Roman, the ancient Roman peasant, let's say, had a huge reign of competences. They also had a huge, enormous number of diverse powers that they had to cope with endlessly, many of them, as for us, outside of their control. But we're faced, we have a very little, we have a very little toolkit we're given, and the more education, the smaller the toolkit. Like my toolkit, you know, I have this, it goes deep, you know, my, like, love of, I love the Romans, I couldn't live without them now, but, like, that's all I know. Like, that's all I know, and it's totally useless in the big world. When I step outside my classroom and go to the gym, do you think anyone um, wants to hear about the Romans? Do you think, like, I mean, it's like, um, you know, this is an incredible privilege to be able, for me to be able to talk about the Romans, because mostly outside of that little tiny space in the machine, all my knowledge is this nothing? So, I mean, I that just brings up a question. So how, you kind of answered a little bit, I suppose, but, you know, I'm a big, my, uh, one of my college professors, you know, I'm Jay Rufus Fears. He was big on Herodotus' idea that, you know, history is moral instruction or should be moral instruction or whatever. Um, I mean, what, what can we take from the Roman conception of honor? Um, is there something that we can learn from them that we can apply to our own lives that might allow us to navigate uh, this world, that this kind of complex world that we live in? Or is it completely irrelevant to this time? Well, of course, I always think that you see yourself more clearly when you, um, you go far away from yourself. I know one of my first classes I ever taught when the students said, it's hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. Um, and I think that, first of all, the study of anything 
And any group of humans or animals very alien from ourselves always gives you a sense of perspective. But also I think, I don't think studying history ever, what, there, there's no one-to-one correlation mm-hmm. between what you learn from history and what you can apply because sure. there's so infinite number of lessons. Yeah. And you never know which one to apply. <laughs> but what it can give you is less of a sense of being alone in your dilemmas and your terrors. And your... I think that um, when I study the ancient Romans, I'm always amazed at both how different and how alike we are. And that the, the basically the kind of what it means to be a creature, what it means to be a human and what it means to be a creature have not changed. We have the same kind of huge emotional um, icebergs we live in with just a little tiny bit. Each culture, each culture I, I ascribe to sort of an iceberg metaphor, that like each culture is like an iceberg with this huge emotional underground and just a few things that are articulated. And the more complex the culture, the fewer things are articulated. The more complex the culture, the simpler the ideology. Mm-hmm. to hold it together, you know, like a, it's like a structure to hold it together, and usually it's really simple. But every culture you study articulates slightly different things, sometimes very different things, and you can go to another culture or another time and get a, a sense, a different set of things that are clarified and articulated so that, for instance, the Romans, they knew much more about honor than we do. They understood it much more, just as they did um, ideas of um, 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 envy. Because you want to know about envy, go to the ancient Romans. Yeah. We don't know anything about envy compared to them. Sometimes another culture understands things and articulates things, gives you words for it, gives you stories for it, pictures for things that we don't have words or pictures for. So that the, it gives you a kind of um, emotional toolkit. Even if your skills make it inevitable that you'll be play a small role in a big machine. Nevertheless, you can have this kind of huge emotional and, and mental toolkit which will help you navigate the particular situation that you're in better. So my idea of studying history is to make the most complex vision of the world mm-hmm. I can possibly hold in my mind, not the simplest, but the most complex, so that I don't feel... My, my goal is not to be surprised by anything humans do. <laughs> and I don't want to say that, oh, that's ridiculous, humans don't do that, or... You know, or think that humans are this, or humans are that, you know, that there's some small definition. I want to kind of have the biggest sense of what, as possible, of what it means to be a human, and then hold that all in my mind, even as I say, well, here I am, this little white woman who's 65 years old, who's a teacher at the University of Massachusetts, and she plays the piano, and she gardens a little bit. Even while I had this little circumscribed universe, to have this huge mental universe where I can go where I please and navigate where I please. 
And where when someone says to me, like, honor is this, or honor is that, the other part of my brain can say, but it could also be this, and it could also be that, and it could also be this. So that in one sense, I'm not as trapped in the ideologies and the religions, in quotes, and all the sort of structures that your culture gives you, which tend to be ridiculously simplified. You know, carved down, pared down so that almost, you know, the, the expression of Procrustean bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that this idea that in the jet plane, when you get on the jet plane, one, um, the only, well, I shouldn't say one, one seat fits all, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like you're all forced to, to occupy the same kinds of spaces and suffer the same kind of thing. But, that doesn't have to be your your inner world, your mental world. Um, and I th- I, my, I trip over a flat sidewalk and you know feel cramped in a low, with a in a room with a low ceiling. It's like for me, I know I lead a little life, and I do that in some ways by choice. Mm-hmm. But it's in order to like have um, a world with sort of no limits. I mean, one of the things I love about um, my tiny little job, my little bit of expertise, is that, you know, here I am, an historian, but, like, history is everything that humans have ever done or felt or said. <laughs> so, like, I'm in my little tiny room, which is a library, and it's, like, so huge. Mm-hmm. I'm out of that box of time and space. Okay, and to come back to honor, I think that if you think of honor as the fullness of being, um, the, you need strategies to get to that fullness of being. And it has to be more than just what your culture offers you. Okay. I often tell my students that, you know, you, you grow up in this culture and it's like they give you a menu these are the things you can have. You can have a job. You can have a family. You can have 2.5 kids. You can have a mortgage. You can have a car. You can have, you know, a retirement fund. You can, you know, play golf in Florida. And it gives you this little tiny menu and says, you choose off of this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I often feel that for many of my students and myself as well, you know, there's nothing on that menu that I want. <laughs> The menu, what I want, what would give me the fullness of being is not on that menu. I mean, it's not, often a culture is so circumscribed in what it can offer that I think that knowing other cultures, knowing other times, knowing other worlds gives you a sense that, okay, what I want is not on that menu. Um, and. Not to feel like, okay, but I still, this is what I've got to have. Yeah. You know, this is what I've got to have. Yeah. This is all that's offered. This is all there is. Um, often you find out that, that there's like, on the other side of the page is like a billion things. Mm-hmm. You know, a billion things to be. Um, I also think that the more complex the culture, the more goal-oriented it is. You know, in more complex cultures, the idea is 
you know, humans are domesticated, they're sacralized and set apart, and their energies are built up also that it can be directed in this direction. So that we're told that meaning is purpose, meaning is goal, meaning is end. And all my students are endlessly, you know, compelled to live in this world of deferred gratification, which makes them drunk all the time, you know. (laughs) At the end, the plane will land, you know, in Hawaii or something like that. And all you have to do is get on the plane. To get on the plane somewhere down the line, you know, you'll be fulfilled. And, of course, it's just a joke. It's like a trick. Yeah. The plane never lands. It always crashes. Whereas meaning can be association. Meaning can be gotten, can be given to the world. It's like, um, you know, this idea that students are looking for meaning, like it's out there, it's something, things that can be given to you, or you can find it or something. Whereas there's a whole way that I've learned from studying other cultures of meaning is something that can be made, just like you can make gods in other cultures. You can make your meanings. But it has to be with this energy and vigor and vitality that come from within, and that you make your maps and your understanding, you make your world from within through this application of of your own powers. And this is a kind of other way to a feeling of honor and fullness. Does that make any sense at all? That, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you can basically take that that Roman idea of like animus and will and create uh, a culture that or an option for you that's not given by the the wider culture exactly exactly or a set of options and to be able to spot okay this is what they're saying are the options but i know those are not the only options i love it yeah we we wrote about that not too long ago just um in our culture, it's very consumeristic. And so, you know, you're given the illusion of choice, right? You have, you can exactly, choose the illusion of choice. You know, you have 30 different detergents you can choose from, but yes, it's yes, only, exactly, it's only those 30 exactly. detergents. Um, but you know, you could choose another. I mean, it's like, uh, those, it, our, our culture is like a, a choose your own adventure book. I don't know if you remember those where it's a book where as you read the book, um, it would say, you know, if, you know, turn to page 37 or turn to page 76, and you know the story changed depending on what page, but like the story changed, and you had a choice, but like you only were given like a select. There were there were only three different three endings. And it's all the same, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, that's great! It's like having a hundred channels on your television set, right? Yeah, and but yeah, that's that, that's all you get. You think you have a choice, but you really don't. I lo- yeah. yeah, I love that idea of taking animus and will and creating new worlds or new cultures for yourself that's not available. That's great. Well, Carlin Barton, we've had a fascinating conversation. I don't want to take uh, much more of your time. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Our guest today was Carlin Barton. She is a professor of classical history at the University of Massachusetts, and her book is Roman Honor, The Fire and the Bones, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Again, I you got to go get this book. It's a fascinating read, and make sure you read the footnotes in this book because those are just as interesting as the main text. Lots of cool insights. And she's also written another book about Roman gladiators. It's called The Sorrows of the Ancient Romans, The Gladiator and the Monster. You can find that on Amazon.com as well. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website. 
And if you enjoy this podcast, again, I appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to your podcast and give our podcast a review. That will definitely help us out. And until next time, stay manly. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.